So you drafted a fantasy football team. Big deal. Ooh, Ooh wow. Oh. Good job. Drafting is only half the battle. A month from now, you're going to wake up, check your team, and see that your three best players are hurt. Now what? You need to play the waivers, make trades, know who to start. And that's what we're here for. We're coming to you four times a week during the regular season to give you everything you need to win your league and dominate your group chat. Search for the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe. It's the Ringer Gambling Show presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here and you can bet on all of the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the post and bet live same-game parlays for every. NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gambling. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen at the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and up and president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ringer Gambling Show. I'm Warren Sharp from SharpFootballAnalysis.com. And of course, we are joined on Wednesday by Ben Solak. And Ben, I have been told that this episode last week was some people's favorite pod of any that they listened to last week, which is big praise. And you should see where this entire new pod itself, the Ringer Gambling Show, has been ranking. It's been unbelievable. Oh, I have. Especially because this podcast just came out this year, just a few weeks ago. So first, thanks to everybody who's subscribing, in particular on this show where we're blending analytics and analysis of film and betting together is a lot of fun. But Ben, how do you feel about the response thus far? I, I feel great. I did tell uh, Mallory, one of our head honchos here at The Ringer, Mallory Rubin, I was like, man, I really, I got to start making sure I'm right on some of this stuff now. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> You're just talking into a vacuum, just you, your microphone in your office. You're like, ah, yeah, the Bill's offense will be good. Don't worry about it. All of a sudden, people are listening. It's like, oh, shucks. Now we got a uh, rubber's going to meet the road here a little bit. But no, I feel pretty good about, about where we were on our first week. Like we said, a lot of it was overreactions. You get two weeks, three weeks, four weeks under your belt. Then you start to be able to really define some trends. Um, and so it's exciting. Now we're getting, we've got twice as much data as we did previously. I'm excited to keep building it up so we really get a feel for these teams this season. Absolutely. And so what we're going to do this show is we're going to first dive into two of the featured matchups, some of the best matchups of the weekend, late afternoon game, and then the Sunday night game. Then we're going to hit on a variety of other games, discuss those, analyze those. I'm going to pepper Ben with some questions, and then we'll go rapid fire on a variety of other topics or notable things. And we're going to be blending in betting spreads along with this as well. So the first game, Ben, is one of the biggest games. It's a matchup of two teams that are both 2-0. and o, And this is 
The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right now, the favorites have flipped a little bit. The Rams were laying a point to a point and a half. Now the Bucs are laying a point to a point and a half uh, in this game on Sunday afternoon. Bucks travel to L.A., take on the Rams, a revenge game, rematch game, say what you will. They played last year. They also, Sean McVay, met Tom Brady in the Super Bowl um, as well. So first, I want to start on the Rams side of the ball on their defense, Ben. And mm-hmm. you know this might sound a little disconcerting if you are a Rams backer, if you are a Rams believer, a truther of this defense. You saw how great this defense was last year. And something that you alluded to in our last show, Ben, was the defense may not be quite as good as people are remembering it for being. And so far this season, it's kind of scary, but the Rams have faced only two starting quarterbacks and their names were Andy Dalton and Carson Wentz. And Andy Dalton, I'm not going to run through every single drive. Let's summarize them. Had seven drives that began with the game within two scores. And all seven drives started in Bears territory and ended in Rams territory. And that's despite Dalton not attempting a single pass over 15 yards, averaging only 5.4 yards per attempt on the day while getting sacked three times. The Bears punted one time on eight drives. Jump ahead to week two. The Colts had 10 drives. Not all of them were commandeered by Carson Wentz, but they punted only one time out of 10 drives. While Wentz was in the game, he had eight drives, seven of which started in Colts territory. Seven of his eight drives ended in Rams territory. So we're picking up on a little bit of a theme here, Ben. Teams are starting out in their territory and having very little trouble moving the ball into scoring position in the Rams territory. Talk to me about this Rams defense. Any concerns specifically about the fact that they've allowed what they did against two teams commandeered by Andy Dalton and Carson Wentz with very little receiver talent. And now they're about to go up against Tom Brady, the Bucks receiving core. Yeah, absolutely concerned. Uh, Steven Ruiz, who writes with, with me at The Ringer, had the stat where he mentioned uh, the the Rams defense was the last defense this year to force a three and out. And that's kind of the the framework that we need to use here. It's like if you look by EPA per play, right, the Rams defense actually isn't playing that badly at all. They're sixth right now in terms of defensive EPA per play allowed. The thing is, they're 20th in success rate. And what we're seeing that like the difference there that's being expressed in those two stats is that the Rams are adhering to the same larger philosophy that Brandon Staley had when he was the defensive coordinator there last year. Brandon Staley loves to talk about, we're going to build the roof. We're going to put a dome on top of you, right? We're going to play with deep alignments with our corners. We're going to play with two safeties deep. We are going to take away the explosive play. If you can nickel and dime us down the field, make no mistakes, constantly convert on third down and then score in the red zone, congratulations, good drive. But we're going to force you to be patient and make those 12, 14 play mistake-free drives. So the Rams still believe this. Uh, They're still adhering to that overarching philosophy and they're giving up a lot of first downs. They're giving up easy underneath completions. Like you saw Carson Wentz just throwing underneath in rhythm constantly against the Rams in week two, something he could never do in Philadelphia. He was always hunting the explosive play. So we're allowing, we are acquiescing to this short completion. And now we're looking at a quarterback in Tom Brady who has for two decades made a career of saying, if you're going to give it to me, I'm going to take it over and over and over and over again, right? So when it's already been surrendered to guys like Dalton and guys like Carson Wentz, you can see how there's concern coming into this week three matchup against Tom Brady. And the problem here is that there's no real easy solution, right? The Rams lost some secondary talent this year. Troy Hill 
departed to Cleveland. Same thing with John Johnson. He leaves to Cleveland. So we're playing Darius Williams as our outside corner two. And we did that last year and, and Brandon Staley could get away with it, but Raheem Morris is struggling to help him in the same way. Darius Williams is really struggling. They've moved Brandon, uh, excuse me, not Brandon Staley, Jalen Ramsey even further inside than he was playing last year. He has taken at this point a majority of his snaps at slot corner instead of at wide corner. And I'm interested to see if that continues against Tampa because last year in week 11, he took the vast majority of his snaps at wide corner because so do they Mike Evans. You got to be big to cover Mike Evans. You can't be putting <laughs> right. Darius Williams or David Long out there on, on Mike Evans. And that's the thing is, okay, we're going to we're gonna acquiesce. We're going to give up short completions. We're going to make you build out these methodical drives. And then, oh, we'll beat you in the red zone. Oh, man, when, when you're facing Mike Evans and Gronk and you only got one Jalen Ramsey, you can't just match up in the red zone, right? You can't just go ahead and, and start playing man there because you've only got one eraser and they've got so many weapons. So this philosophy... While it is still a good philosophy, Raheem Morris is struggling to implement it in the same way, with the same success that Brandon Staley did. And now they're facing a legitimately dangerous passing game, one of the best in the league with multiple red zone weapons. Uh, I don't think the Rams' defense is going to be able to take any wind out of the sails for Tampa Bay. They're just going to simply have to outscore them. Yeah, that I think that that is a fascinating matchup on that side of the ball, and you're absolutely right. It's one thing to let Carson Wentz come into your red zone and then the team uh, fail on multiple fourth downs inside the five-yard line and just not walk away with any points multiple times uh, in the first half of that game. But it's another thing to expect that Tom Brady is going to struggle in the same manner. Now, on the other side of the ball, Ben, one of the biggest gripes that I've had with the Bucs play calling in 2020 was their propensity to run the ball on first down and not really accomplish a whole lot. Um, And that's the reason why on second down last year, they averaged 7.9 yards to go, which was the sixth longest in the NFL as a result of their first down play calling. This year, though, I've been really pleasantly surprised to see a big change. Uh, On first downs in the first three quarters of the game, last year, they were 50% run, which was the league average. And those runs recorded only 44% success and 4.3 yards per carry. This year, the 50% run has dropped all the way down to 37% run. They're passing a lot more. The runs, when they are calling them, have gained 63% success. That 37% run rate that was 50% last year is the third lowest in the NFL. And it's one of the reasons why we've seen a massive flip in terms of the first three quarters of games. On second downs in the first three quarters of games, in 2020, they averaged eight yards to go. That was the second longest. In 2019, Sorry, in 2021, this year, 6.7. That's the second shortest. So from second longest yards to second shortest, they're running the Mm -hmm. ball at the third lowest rate on first down, making better decisions on these first down plays. What have you taken away from the Bucs offense this year that might have changed and you've noticed in film that they're doing better or you think they're going to have continued success against this defense? Yeah, I think it's simply the the continuation of what we saw down the stretch last year, which was, okay, Brady's in a new offense. We're trying to figure out the balance here, right? And 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 new offenses and even new defenses, like talking about the Rams and the new DC, we always like to think, okay, we do install during camp. This is our defense, and now we're going to go and play it for 17 weeks. And the reality is that things are a lot more amorphous. They evolve over time, right? And we saw that with that Tampa Bay offense down the stretch in 2020 where they were static and they were running the ball a lot and then they come out of the bye and they're running play action more and they're using pre-snap motion more and Byron Leftwich had a great quote during that process where they asked him why weren't you guys running as much play action he was like I don't know 
You know what I mean? Like it's just it's it's discovery, right? Like you you have to figure out what works over time. And obviously, like you can talk about it in meeting rooms, and you can have models which tell you the best way to do it. But it is a feeling out process. And generally, coaches like to run on first down. That's a, an archaic philosophy. It's one they likes. It feels safer. Well, the more confident that Brady gets in the offense, the better control he has at the line of scrimmage, the more consistently they're converting on intermediate passes, the less you feel like you have to run on first and 10, the less that feeling kind of captures you and makes you turtle, holds you strong. Because you, you're saying, all right, if, if, if we incomplete on first and 10, we're back to second and 10. We feel a lot better about that right now in week three of 2021 than we did in week three of 2020 because we've seen demonstrated comfort from Brady, from Byron Leftwich, and understanding how to make this passing offense go. So to me, schematically, not that much has changed. It's just a matter of we've all been in the pocket for a year. We all get it now. We all know where where our where we can hit our doubles. We know what our go tos are. So I don't see anything super different schematically than what they were doing in the back half of of 2020. I just think in general they're all in synchronicity right now. Yeah, it's it's looking beautiful and. I'm glad that Tom Brady is taking a little bit more control of that offense and they're doing some things that are more plus mm-hmm. EV. Let's talk about Sean McVay and how he's going to approach this game attacking this Bucks defense. And we saw Matt Ryan actually have a lot of success last week. That game was a lot closer than the final score indicated, particularly through the first three quarters. Um, but one thing that we've definitely noted so far this year is the play callers that have gone up against the Bucks have radically altered their run-pass ratio in order to avoid running against this Bucks defense. Dallas was 46% pass against the Chargers last week on early downs in the first three quarters, but they rocketed to 78% pass when they played the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in week one. Atlanta in week one, they were 41% pass on these early downs in the first three quarters against the Eagles. Week two, they move from 41% pass to 71% pass on those same situations. So both teams are a lot more balanced, probably a little bit too run heavy in their other game, but against the Bucs, they're passing the ball on these early down plays, almost three out of every four plays that they have. Last season against the Bucs, the Rams went 77% pass in these same situations after going only 51% pass over the course of the first 10 weeks of the season. So Sean McVay intelligently adjusted his play, calling to more pass-heavy scheme. Is that exactly what you anticipate happening in this game? Once again, that he's not really going to change. Obviously, the Rams won that game and had a lot of success in their first seven drives. They punted only one time against this Bucks defense, and that was with Jared Goff under center. What do you think this Rams offense is going to look like, and what level of success or confidence in that level of success do you have with them going up against Tom Brady's defense? Yeah, I mean, listen, there's a very large man in the middle of the Tampa Bay defense. His name is Vita Vea. You never want to run at him ever. And that's the thing. It's it's not that simple, but it's almost that simple. Uh, structurally, the Todd Bowles defense, so we're going to blitz and we're going to move linebackers from different spots, whatever. It's not like this Chargers defense, right? The one you brought up, the the Cowboys ran against a lot because they're playing the Brandon Staley defense. They're giving you light boxes. It's not anything like that where it's box count that's affecting it. It's just simply they have such a strong defensive front with Vita Vea, Dominican Sue, Jason Pierre-Paul, and Shaq Barrett. Worth noting that Jason Pierre-Paul has been one of the best run-defending defensive ends in the league since he emerged. You know what I mean? Like, they've got the horses, Levante David, Devin White. It's just a really good front. You don't want to deal with it. Uh, and if you can pass the football successfully against Sean Murphy Bunting, Jamel Dean, some players who 
are run a little bit more hot and cold. They really had nice stretches down in the playoffs. Sean Murphy Bunting looked amazing in the playoffs. But it's worth noting, like during the 2020 season, he was not that dude. Uh, that's just the matchup that you want to go after, right? And and the point of how run heavy McVeigh has, or excuse me, how pass heavy McVeigh has been in these matchups before emphasizes that McVeigh wants to run the football to set up the pass. That's how he wants to go about things. But against Tampa, there's just no utility there. You just have to go straight to the passing game. And if you're going to get Cooper Cup against Sean Murphy Bunting, like Cooper Cup's had an unbelievable season so far from the slot, you take that matchup every day and twice on Sundays. That's that's uh, that's the best matchup you're going to get against this talented of a defense. What's interesting to me is going to be how little Sean McVay trusted Jared Goff against the Blitz. Uh, the ball would come out extremely fast. It would come out on screens. It would come out on quick looks. Goff was not the sort of player you wanted holding the ball against the Blitz versus Stafford, who is a guy who likes to extend, a guy who likes to push the ball down the field. So are we going to see as McVeigh did in 2020 with Goff, empty sets, spread them out, make sure you define where the blitzers are coming from. Because when you go empty, it's very easy to see where the extra rusher is coming from. Are we going to see that to help out Stafford with pre-snap look? Because that's what McVeigh had to do with Goff. Or are we going to see more traditional condensed sets, running back back there, play action stuff? And is McVeigh going to have more trust in Stafford to solve these problems on his own without McVeigh's guidance? The, the One of the funniest plays of week two was the third and two jet sweep to Cooper Cup when the Rams were tied late in the fourth with the Colts. And McVay came out in the postgame presser and said, like, that was a dumb play call. Like, I hated that play call. He made that play call because in situations past with Goff, he would not trust Goff in that context. So he'd get the ball to Cooper Cup right away. Now he has to relearn how to call these situational footballs with a quarterback that he trusts, right? So there's, like like I talked about with Brady and Leftwich last year, there is a growing process here. So I'll be very interested to see what the game plan is against the Blitz. But... Stafford can dice him up. Cup's playing amazing. I think they're going to throw the ball a ton, and I think they're going to be successful throwing it. If Carlton Davis is out for this game, right now he's questionable with a hammy. Uh, tough sledding for a Buccaneers defense. So final takeaway on this game, Ben, from film, anything jump out to you that you think is not being factored into the line or other people don't realize it uh, that you think might play a role in defining this game? And if yay or nay, either way, which what result do you think we're going to get here? Do you, this game is basically close to a pick em. As I said, flavor, favorites mm-hmm. have flip-flopped. The total has been bet up from, you know, f- opened in the look at a 52 and a half, then reopened about 54. Now is up to 55 and a half. Side total, what do you think? Yeah, I liked the total uh, when it first opened. I think I still like the total on the over. Uh, I think this is going to be high pace. I think it's going to be high scoring. And I think we even saw in the 31 to nothing game last year, even if one of these teams builds a lead, they're not going to turtle and run it. Uh, they understand that this is going to be a high-paced game where you want to have a multi, 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 multi-score lead um, before you start to sit on the football. So I like the total on it. I think the only other thing that is interesting and is going to be curious to watch is how a Daryl Henderson bruised rib injury. He's going to try to play, apparently, but bruised ribs absolutely suck to play on. It just hurts to breathe. Uh, if he plays on that versus if, the Rams have to go for backup running backs because obviously with Cam Akers already down, uh, you're down to your third, your fourth running back. You're down to Sonny Michelle, who is your trade acquisition. Uh, the McVay offense wants to run the ball in different ways. When you start going down the depth chart, you lose some of the multiplicity. That can make it even harder uh, for the Rams to run the football. Makes you even pass heavier. Uh, and so to me, there's the the injuries potential for like Carlton Davis and Daryl Henderson make this game just even more strong on. I expect 
50 passes from both quarterbacks. I expect a lot of fireworks. I love it. Hopefully this game lives up to the hype because it certainly looks like one of the best games at the start of the season. Um, and as we are speaking, I'm seeing the board move to ones are turning into one and a half as money is coming in on the Bucks. Uh, let's move to the Sunday night game. Uh, on this one, we'll go a little bit faster and then we'll pick up the pace further down the stretch. But the Packers right now, Ben, obviously the Packers were held in check by the Saints. And then the first half of the game against the Lions, it felt like the Lions were using a defense that was also limiting and encouraging the run plays a little bit more and forcing you know, the ball out of Aaron Rodgers' hands a little bit. They were actually, they actually had more runs than passes. And you know, despite the passes being highly efficient, they just continued to run the football. Not the runs in the first quarter were that bad, but in the second quarter, the running efficiency was was fine. It was good, but it just wasn't as explosive or anywhere close to what Aaron Rodgers was getting out of the passing attack. Then the floodgates obviously opened in the second half and they started passing them all a little bit more and had a lot more success in 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 doing so and decided to lean more on that. What do you take away from the way that defenses have chosen to defend this Packers passing attack and 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 offense in general and then pivot that to the matchup Sunday night where the Packers are catching three and a half points in San Francisco. Do you think there's anything that the 49ers might do in a similar manner? And what do you think the 49ers defense is going to do in terms of holding up against this Packers offense? Yeah, so we've seen from D'Amico Ryans, who's the new DC there at San Francisco, replacing Robert Sala, uh, that he is going to keep the same general structure, which was a quarter structure. Uh, a lot of the the hype about like the Brandon Staley defense Sale was not doing like super similar stuff, but he was still like living in a too high world using Jakiski Tart as a John Johnson like player a couple years ago. So we're still in a quarter structure, so we're still going to be too high. Uh, what you what you saw from first half to second half for the Packers against the Lions was that the Lions didn't change too much structurally defensively from half one to half two. They still walked out in too high. That's what they want to be. Uh, but the injury to Efeatu Melafonwu changed how successfully they felt like they could pass cover on the outside. So you can start picking on his uh, replacements. But also the Packers walked out in a bunch of uh, what we call nub sets. So if you have all your receivers out to one side of the formation, and on the other side of the formation, you just have a tight end attached to the line of scrimmage, no receivers out wider than him. We call that a nub set because on that side of the field, it's just a little nub. Just tight end, a little nub at the end of the offensive line. That is a nightmare to match when you're a defense that wants to play right and left. You don't want to really move players around. You want to play zone because what happens is you now have to bring the corner to that nub side of the field, but there's no receiver. You have to put him in the box. Uh, he's got to play like a linebacker. And when you can run at that player, corners don't like playing the run. Corners are the most physical sons of guns. Uh, and so you get that advantage. You also now get linebackers, Jamie Collins, Alex Anzalone, more involved in the passing game to the three receiver side because they have to push over. Now they have to flood the zones. They have to get over to that strong, multiple receiver side of the field. So you saw like Aaron Jones be super successful catching the ball out of the backfield because the Packers were able to get him matched up with a linebacker really, really easily, really frequently out of those sets, right? So Matt LaFleur came out and he had an answer for this. We're gonna, if they're going to be in too high, we're going to play nub sets. They, would, they were initially walking Trey Flowers out to cover Devontae Adams in the slot. Like that was their first answer. And then they were like, all right, frick, we can't do this. This is horrible. So like you- So you this can, was a clear, This sorry to interrupt, this was a clear halftime adjustment by LaFleur yeah. last week. Yeah, I mean, so that little like Robert Tunyon screen that he hit a couple of times right to the tight end, that's three by one nub, running back ba fast out of the backfield. Everybody's looking, all right, all the dangerous players are over here. And then there's just one guy left on the other side of the field and you're able to get him the ball in space. So that is nice. We love when LaFleur does that. LaFleur is a pretty good adjustment coach. And the thing about the Packers is they run so many RPOs that when 
Roger sees Trey Flowers out in zone over Devontae Adams, he's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to throw it there. That's, that's, we like this matchup. So it gives Rodgers a nice clear picture in terms of who he wants to pick on. So I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see that. We continue to see a heavy running back and tight end target approach because it's easy buckets. And it's kind of getting that offense moving down the field. And then you'll get your unbelievable Aaron Rodgers touchdown throw to Robert Tunyon. He's a magical player. And now we're moving the ball successfully. The reality is that was a lot more about Detroit just not having great defensive personnel. San Francisco has better defensive personnel. Quan Alex, uh, excuse me, not Quan Alexander, Fred Warner is a lot better in coverage than Alex Anzalone and Jamie Collins was. So I'm not as certain the wins will be as easy, but you saw some good schematic adjustments to write that too high shell that was really reinforcing the running game. You saw LaFleur press some buttons to make sure they could pass the ball a little bit easier, get some more predefined reads, and accordingly start moving the ball a little better down the field. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. So in this particular matchup against the 49ers, how do you see the Packers attacking this defense? And do you see them having success? Yeah, I think that you're going to see a, a similar approach where they're going to say, listen, the Saints took our running game away from the jump. Uh, and so we, first, we've got to stay in, in neutral scripts early so we can at least have the run aspect of our RPO and stay in our base offense, right? Their base offense, they want to be RPO heavy, which at times makes them run heavy because that's the look that Rodgers is getting. So I think they're going to they're going to sit in that and they're going to be willing to work Aaron Jones early. Uh, the continued use of Jones out of the backfield as a pass catcher is also really exciting against the San Francisco defense because beyond Fred Warner, they don't really have a, a great coverage linebackers, nor do they have uh, ideal coverage safeties for a guy like Jones. Jaquiz Guitar is much more so of like a tight end eraser than he is a running back player. So I think you're going to see a similar model, a similar approach and similar success. The concern is when you do go into your play pass, when you do go into your play action passes, and you do go into your drop back passes when you're behind on game script, that Lions defensive front, much more so built to stop the run than stop the pass. Uh, the Niners are bringing Nick Bosa, D4, Javon Kinlaw, and Eric Armstead to the table, which Eric Armstead right now is second in the league in pressures, which I did not realize. He's playing really well. So I think that you are going to see probably a little bit more even run heaviness than they gave in the first half against the Lions because they're going to want to stay ahead of the sticks. Because right now, especially with the David Bakhtiari injury, I don't think they have the guys to hang in pass protection against what San Francisco can do. So I think it's going to be heavy Aaron Jones target again. Uh, probably, again, a decent amount of Robert Tunyon targets as well. I don't think it's going to be the Marquez Valdez, Scantling, the Alan Lazard deep shots that we saw in week one. It's going to be more shallow passes, more quick game, more packaged RPO stuff, trying to nickel and dime their way down the field. And yeah, that MVS stuff didn't really work out at all anyways in week one, uh, week two, rather, now, last it, week. It often it often <laughs> does not with MVS. It's just you're kind of always just throwing a dart and hope in there. Now, on the other side of the ball, let's talk about Joe Barry. Let's talk about this Packers defense. The Packers are only the fifth defense since 2020 to not have a player register a sack in the first two weeks of the season. How do you see this defense, which got overwhelmed by Jared Goff? And it was funny because in the first half of that game, 
Obviously, Jared Goff was moving the football. They led um, at halftime. Mm-hmm. And then the rain started. And then Jared Goff's super tiny hands became a problem. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he throws an interception. He has a fumble that uh, they recover. It was mm-hmm. just that ball got wet and Goff started. His hands became an issue potentially. Yeah. But what do you make of Jimmy G, the 49ers run game, their offensive line going up against this Joe Barry-led Packers defense? Yeah, as a man who had the over on DeAndre Swift's rushing cards, I really could have used that rain like a few scores earlier <laughs> when we didn't weren't forced to pass the football. That's what I was kind of banking on there. But anyway, uh, yeah, so the Packers defense is really interesting because if I told you uh, they're really, really bad in the running game right now, uh, obviously the Saints move the ball in them with impunity. Even the Lions were decently successful running the football with backs uh, when they were doing that when the game script was still positive. You would assume they are a low box count defense. They have fewer defenders in the box to defend the run. It's just not the case. Uh, they are right now 29th in the league in light box percentage. Uh, they are playing with seven-man boxes. They have Kenny Clark and Kingsley Kiki and Tyler Lancaster. They have enough mass up front in a three-down front with you know Rashawn Gary and Preston Smith along the outsides that there is absolutely no reason they should be bad against the run. They are bad against the run. And then they're not pass rushing successfully with those guys either. Uh, and they don't have uh, blitz packages, really. They're not, they're not a team that's trying to bring guys from depth and, and to mug up the fronts as much as Mike Pettin used to do. They don't have the linebackers in, in uh, Oren Burks and in Chris Barnes and in De- Devondre Campbell to account for poor play up in the front. Like Kenny Clark's been a non-factor. Big money Kenny Clark's been a non-factor through two weeks. So they are just simply struggling in terms of how well their big money players are playing up front. It's, it is that simple. There is nothing they're doing from an X's and O's perspective that's making them weak to just being constantly moved off the ball by the offensive line, whether it's in the running game or in the passing game. Then throw in the fact that they're trying to live by this Brandon Staley philosophy and they're trying to be build a dome on top of you and they're not just manning up with Jair Alexander or manning up with another good corner. They don't really have one, but whatever. Uh, they're trying to play these deep zones that, yeah, you get Jared Goff just distributing the TJ Hawkinson all the way down the field, right? I, I like, and, and then when you want to go pick up your, pick your matchup, you go to the side where Jair Alexander isn't. Just, it's Kevin King or Eric Stokes. You know what I mean? Like Stokes has some promise, but he's a rookie in his, in his third career start, second career start. It's just not, uh, it's a matchup you like as an offense. You're going to take that every day of the week. And so the Green Bay defense right now is just bottoming out. They're cratering out. They're not getting good plays from their their star players. Jair can't affect the game that much because they can't funnel targets his way. Zadarius Smith is on the sideline on injured reserve. They don't have any gas. Uh, This San Francisco running game shouldn't be good because I can't name who their running backs are. And like, this is my job, but they have so many injuries. But it's still, I I expect it to be perfectly fine because I I have no faith in that Green Bay front to be able to hold down against the running game. I'm not saying we're going to get 2019 NFC Championship game vibes, but it might be close. Uh, so I think San Francisco is able to move the ball in the running game very successfully, regardless of who they're handing the football to. Uh, and then if you get to pick your matchup, Debo Samuel, George Kittle, uh, even if they want to get Brandon Ayuk involved, they don't really seem like they care, but want to get him involved. You have your matchups against this Green Bay defense. Right now, I have very little faith in Joe Barry and that unit altogether. One interesting angle on this game from a, or comment from a betting perspective was we saw one of the first head fakes on a total so far this season that was pretty blatant and obvious. And, you know, before the show, Ben, we were, I was showing you the odd screen at Don Best and we were walking through that. And, you know, I'm looking at on one of my monitors, this screen at all times, I'm staring right into the abyss right now uh, as all the games and lines change at, you know, tens and tens and tens of books. And this game 
opened with a total, reopened with a total at 48. And it took action to the under pretty early uh, on Tuesday morning, got down to 47. And within 20 minutes of it getting to 47, it started getting pummeled back to the over. And so this will happen when a group wants to get a little bit, they, they absolutely love their position and they want to get more down at a better number. So they'll bet the wrong way first. And we, my group does this many times as well. We'll bet the wrong way first, get that line to move in the direction against what we want to take, but give us a more favorable number. The key is you have to then have multiple outs to get down the right position and bet that for significantly more money at a better number. So 47, they wanted to get the 47 on this game. And so they hammered the 47. And now we're seeing a total that is sitting at a variety of different books. The prices ranging between, I'm seeing some in Vegas still have 49. Others are up to 50 and a half offshore. But we're seeing at the bottom line is around a total of 50 at the present time. Any thoughts on side or total in terms of where this one ends up? I do think I prefer total just because I don't have any faith in this Green Bay defense as previously stated. Uh, and while the San Francisco defense may have looked solid against the Eagles in week two, uh, the Eagles also had drives stall in scoring position inside the red zone. We talked about that a little bit with Rams Colts uh, and the Eagles offense. I, I, I called it fool's gold on last week's show. I don't have a lot of faith in them altogether. So I don't think the the test for San Francisco was that big. So I don't trust either of these defenses and I trust these offenses a little more. So I lean over, but I am concerned about pacing because I expect a very run-heavy script from San Francisco and then a more run-heavy script than usual from Green Bay. And so I'm not sure if I'm actually willing to take this one, but you do have an Aaron Rodgers-led team and then a Kyle Shanahan-led team. Those are generally good offenses to put your faith in if you want to. Do you think, just last question on this one for you, do you think that the injuries to the secondary of the 49ers would play a role in getting the floor to want to pass the ball a little bit more to start this game? Or do you think the pass rush and the offensive line's lack of health with Bakhtiari out is going to make them want to try to look for more success on the ground? I think you lean towards the ground, but does the injuries in the secondary play a factor in what they might end up doing? It, I, I think it does. The reason why I'm, I'm hesitant to put my chest into that is because the Packers passing game, especially downfield, has looked good for five plays this year, right? And I, I, I don't think that Matt LaFleur has lost any faith in Aaron Rodgers. I don't think it's not that he doesn't trust Aaron Rodgers. I do think that you don't necessarily want to just kind of like chuck him into the deep end and be like, hey, remember what we tried to do during the Saints game and none of it worked? Just do it again. You know what I mean? I think there's going to be an easing in process. Like I said, like I think that they, they did a really good job finding their layups against the Lions. So I think they're going to come out with San Francisco and start with the layup line again, right? And and you you kind of want to build this house slowly. You don't feel like you have to win all these games right now because you trust your team to to win down the stretch, win the division, make the playoffs. So to me, there's no urgency to get out get out here and be like, we got to get Adams moving. We got to get the downfield passing game moving again. I think they're going to chunk it up a little bit just because of how shaky the ground is right now in Green Bay. Okay, moving on. We've got a couple of games that I want to touch on in a little bit faster capacity. Let's get these through. Washington at Bills. This, to me, is a low-key, interesting matchup. Uh, we've got two teams that are both sitting at 1-1 one and one on the season. And you got Master versus Pupil. You've got Ron Rivera, Sean McDermott. 
first, let's touch on the Bills offense. Ben, what did you see? Obviously, they posted a crooked number against the Miami Dolphins defense and ended up winning that game in a blowout fashion. We predicted that they would have more success. We predicted that the Dolphins defense couldn't do what the Steelers wanted and they wouldn't match up perfectly uh, as currently constructed. But the Bills offense still doesn't appear to be clicking on all cylinders. Um, And Josh Allen specifically hasn't looked as good as he did in 2020. What is their problem? Yeah, so I think the first problem is like Allen has not been super accurate, which the whole like how accurate is Josh Allen thing is a just can of worms that I don't think we can get into. But (laughs) Allen has not looked nearly as bad as he did it. Like Wyoming are coming in as a rookie, but he has missed throws. So number one, you leave him plays on the field. Your quarterback's got to be better. Number two, and we we see this regularly uh, across the course of NFL seasons year to year. Brian Dabble came out and was just pitching gas for 17 weeks. And I think a lot of defenses spent a lot of time deciding what are we going to take away? I talked about how the Steelers pretty much custom-rigged a game plan for the Bills in Week 1. The Dolphins are a division opponent, and we were concerned that they were just going to sit there, play man coverage, blitz a ton, and get beat the same way that they did last year. Well, they didn't do that. They still played man, but they didn't blitz as much, and they played with a lot of robber coverage, played a lot of a safety in a hole, and that takes away the intermediate middle of the field. And when you look at where Josh Allen was really successful last year, was throwing the dig and throwing the seam to the intermediate areas of the field. That was the biggest jump in his accuracy, the biggest jump in his production. You look at his uh, passing spray charts for the first two weeks of the season, they're struggling to find the intermediate area of the field. He was working a lot outside of the hashes, working to the intermediate left in this past game. So I think that Dabble's getting some of his favorite pitches taken away, and Allen's missing some balls. I don't think that, again, like, I don't think this is going to be a longstanding problem. I think it's going to be something that they're able to figure out over time. When you're facing a defense like Washington, uh, you obviously want to get this moving quick, but you saw with Daniel Jones and, and really a not great Giants passing attack, this Washington offense, excuse me, this Washington defense loaded up on the talent they felt was necessary to play more man coverage. They brought in Bobby McCain to be their slot player, right, the safety for Miami. Uh, they brought in William Jackson, the corner out, out of Cincinnati. They wanted to play more man. They were a very zone-heavy team last year. William Jackson was getting burned by Darius Slayton. You know what I mean? Like The Giants were able to pick apart man coverage. If there's anything Jason Garrett's offense can do, it can define reads against man coverage. Congrats to Jason Garrett. So I, I, I said I thought Miami would play a lot of zone or excuse me, Miami would play a lot of man and give Allen a better week. It didn't happen. I'm going to say the same thing again, and maybe I'm going to be an idiot twice. But I think Washington wants to play more man, and I think that Allen's going to be able to to take apart man coverage. I I still believe that he has that ability. If Washington walks out and plays more zone, or they really take away that intermediate area of the field, the onus is not really on Allen. It's on Dable to come up with better ways to solve this problem. Because right now, you have a a bit of a two-headed issue. Something's got to give at some point. Either Dable's got to figure out how to work the offense without hitting those those notes that he hit last year or Allen's got to start hitting the routes that Dable's giving him but something's got to give here it kind of just depends on what Washington's going to give you structurally also Sean McDermott is an Eagles product all right he was there for 10 years I claim him not a Ron <laughs> Rivera side, but it's Jim Johnson baby there you go so both of these defenses though they are quite similar in that they blitz at a high rate both rank top seven in their blitz rate and they've been getting home at a decent clip a bills at number three washington at number six which offensive line do you think will do a better job of handling that pressure that they're going to be bringing um and you know where do you see an edge in this game obviously right now washington is Expected to lose this game. The point spread is Buffalo minus eight and a half. The total open at 46 and a half, 47 has been bet towards the under with lower points expected at 45 and a half is where it sits right now. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm probably passing on this game just because I've yet to figure out what it, like Taylor Heineke just I don't have a beat on it. I thought it was just going to be run heavy, and I thought he was going to scramble a lot, and he was just like dealing from the pocket. I did not expect it, and so I don't have a great vibe on what Washington wants to do offensively now they've had the quarterback change. But what I will say is that Buffalo spent even more than this past offseason. They've spent the past couple of offseasons trying to build out the pass rush around Jerry Hughes. Uh, and, and there was a great quote that Brandon Bean gave Kevin Clark at the ringer, which was, we're trying to build this team to beat the Chiefs. Like We know what we got to do here if we want to make it to the Super Bowl. We got to go through Kansas City. Uh, AJ Epinesa, second round edge, looks awesome through two weeks of the season. Gregory Rousseau, first round edge, looks better than you expected a rookie draft at number 30th overall looks. They are better with their front pass rush and the tackles are the weak spots for that Washington offensive line interior offensive line solid Charles Leno the journeyman and then uh, uh, Sam Cosby the second round rookie playing right tackle that's where you want to attack I think that Buffalo can win with their pass rush on early downs win with four get them into third and long downs and then you get the Leslie Frazier blitz packages and you start to eat the way you've always eaten I think they're going to be able to generate a lot more pressure on Heineke a lot more disruption in that offensive line than New York was able to I think Buffalo's defense should be able to get a good control of this game they haven't played the best offenses yet in Pittsburgh and Miami but Buffalo's playing really good defensively Levi Wallace has stepped into the corner two role and has played really good ball I think they're able to keep Buffalo's score low uh, so I, I do lean, if anything, probably under, though I know the total's moving that way, and I'm not sure if I'd take it yet at this line, because I think that Buffalo's defense is going to be able to have the control that's necessary. Yeah, it looks like their focus on the draft was getting the edge pressure. They are doing a better job of that this year. Maybe their defense is returning more to the form that they were pre-2020, where they kind of fell off a little bit. Uh, one note on this game, looking back last year, Scott Turner maintained the Number six highest early down pass rate in the first half of games, despite that ridiculous assortment of quarterbacks that they were trotting out there on the football field. We're talking Dwayne Haskins, Kyle Allen, Alex Smith, uh, and Taylor Heineke rotating throughout the course of the season, All almost a different starter every single week. So I would expect that he is going to continue with that higher rate of passing, uh, just understanding the philosophy that early down passing is more efficient and it helps the quarterback more than running if it's unsuccessful and having that same quarterback try to throw the ball on third and obvious pass situations. Chargers at Chiefs, another marquee game. We've got the AFC West, uh, two great quarterbacks uh, of this game. You know, obviously Justin Herbert's coming on strong, although he did throw a couple of picks. And I want to talk about this offense because you brought it up last week. It was a question I had why they face so many third downs against Washington in week one. What can they do to alleviate that and improve themselves? And one of the notes that I took just looking at their two games to date in total is that this team is getting less out of their play action passing attack. And they're actually utilizing play action less on early downs in the first three quarters this year than they did last year. Joe Lombardi is also, I don't know the, what they're doing. Maybe you can inform us, but their play action average depth of target this year is yep. 4.9 yards. Last that was year, gonna be my guess. Last, uh, it feels good whenever I like kind of get it before the numbers come in. All right, sick. There you go. So, so this year it's four point nine. Last year it was eight point one. And average depth of target obviously is a strong driver in what your actual yardage is going to be. Twenty twenty one, that four point nine eight dot is leading only to six yards per attempt and minus zero point zero nine EPA per attempt. Last year 
it was 9.2 yards per attempt on these early down play action plays, and they were plus 0.24 EPA. So night and day difference. And it's not just been the play action depth of target. It's depth of target everywhere. If you just look at a metric where you're looking at how close to the sticks are you throwing the football on average for every single passing play. This year so far, Justin Herbert is a half yard shorter to the sticks than he was last year. And they're throwing into tighter coverages. The aggressiveness rate on the tracking data is showing that more of his passes are being thrown to guys that are being defended tighter by opposing defenders. So we're looking at lower depth of target and more aggressive throws into tighter windows. Seems like an an unideal strategy for an offense. What did you take out of their game last week and where do you think they need to go? Yeah, I uh, as I celebrated there, the <laughs> I talked about this a little bit in, in week one. It's even more evident after week two. Uh, the young man, Herbert, can sling the pill. You got to let the Bronco buck a little bit. Uh, Joe Lombardi is coming from a Saints team that, especially with late era Drew Brees, had to be uh, precise and perfect and methodical in their approach, uh, championing efficiency over explosiveness. Because Breeze was never really just going to give you much of an explosive passing game at the stage at which his arm was, especially down the stretch, you just really couldn't get that out of him. You know that you saw that like third and 15 throw to Keenan Allen that Justin Herbert hit, right? The whole shot, right? Corners trying to jump up, safety's coming in, just right in the buckets, like 60 yards as the crow flies. You could do this whenever you want. It's not just a third down thing. You could let Herbert push the ball down the field. Um, they've got Mike Williams who was their deep ball guy last year, working a lot more of the Michael Thomas role. Uh, he, he runs a lot more breaking routes. He runs a lot more quick stuff over the middle of the field. Uh, and then Keenan Allen, who like isn't a bad deep receiver at all, has just always been a really good separator. So it makes sense to use him as a separator. It makes sense to use him from the slot, use him as a, a short-running player. The other thing is that they're coming out with a lot of condensed sets, right? We talked about this in terms of their, their RPO game. Wide receivers close to the, the center, close to the, where the football is. Tight ends close to where the football is. Harder to stretch the field vertically when everybody's coming from those tight alignments, because there's a lot of trash to work through. So unless you're working a deep play action drop and you're running some of the McVay stuff, it's hard to get your, your vertical stretches, get two, three guys vertical down the field when they're all got to work through the linebacker level. So this offense right now is built to champion efficiency over explosiveness in the passing game. But the quarterback could give you as many explosive passing, ga- passing gains as any quarterback in the league not named Patrick. Like, that's how good Herbert's looked through two weeks. Uh, Her- Herbert's got the second most career passing yards in the first 17 games of his career, second only to Mahomes. And most of that came from Anthony Lynn last year. Like, they are not opening up the offense enough. So to me, uh, the Chargers are, are they're passing the ball to decent click in early downs, but the efficiency isn't there because they're so willing to just try to play for the sticks and play for the manageable third down. They had 12 third down attempts in week two after 16 in week one. There's just no reason to play like this. They should have beat the, the Cowboys, had multiple touchdowns pulled back for, in, uh, for, for penalty. I think their offense will be better. Again, the theme of this podcast kind of been the growth throughout the year because I expect as Brandon Staley, who's a big analytics guy, Joel Lombardi and Justin Herbert sit down and talk more and more about this offense, the more and more they'll come to realize we need to stretch the field vertically. We have to open this up and get some more explosives. Yeah, they've jacked up their pass rate. They are passing the ball more on these early down plays, uh, especially compared to what they were doing last year. It's just not nearly as aggressive as it should be, as you indicated, when you've got such a talent like Justin Herbert behind center. The other interesting thing is, I mean, they are going to have to get this fixed very quickly because this team is going to go up against the Chiefs, 
the Raiders offense, the Browns offense, and the Ravens offense, their next four games, four games against offenses that can be very productive, um, and they've got to do so quick. One interesting ATS note on this one, since week nine of last year, Ben, don't know if you know this, but betting on KC would have led you to a 1-11 and record over the last 12 games. They have not been covering the spreads. Odds makers have been over-expecting, and the public continues to typically back Patrick Mahomes. Any thoughts on this game? The game is right now six and a half, so you're not getting a full touchdown if you want to back the Chiefs, if you want to back the Chargers in this spot. Yeah, I wish you would have told me that before Chiefs-Ravens last week, Warren. <laughs> uh, maybe next time. <laughs> no, that... Uh... We, 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 gave, we gave a lot of warning on the Friday sh- episode on this feed about how bookmakers needed the Ravens like blood and it was really strong position from them and that's where you would ride by the books. But yes, we did not share that on this episode. I apologize. <laughs> no, nah, sorry, sorry. It means I got to do a better job keeping up with my podcast before I make my bets. Got to stop making them too early in the week. Uh, right, Chargers six and a half. That, that's the thing, right? When we're talking about a divisional game, we're talking about the Chiefs coming off of an emotional loss. Last year, uh, Kansas City had the 17-point win against them uh, at the end of the year where not everybody was starting. But in week two, it was the 23 to 20 overtime game. And that was Herbert's first game where he didn't even know he was starting. Um, So both games kind of feel a little bit like a throwout. But I do have belief in the Chiefs to, or excuse me, belief in the Chargers to, as a divisional team, play it close. Brandon Staley to understand the Chiefs are the team that I've got to beat. This is the team that I have to prepare for. And also, uh, the Chargers really haven't gotten knocked down into a multi-score hole just yet. If they do, maybe that play action rate jumps up maybe that deep passing rate jumps up because they feel the need to score points quick. And that's where you and I think the Chargers can succeed. So I do like the Chargers to cover six and a half. Even if it's through the back door, uh, I think they can get it done. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. So let's jump ahead real quick, and I want to pick your brain. We're going to do it in a little bit of a rapid fire. For non-obvious key mismatches, we did this last week. It was pretty interesting, some of the things that you shared. Is there anything that you haven't discussed yet on a key mismatch that's not obvious for this week's slate of games that you think might make a difference in the result? 
Yeah, so one thing about Chiefs uh, Chargers is that the Chiefs run defense has been abysmal. Now they faced the Browns and the Ravens. So take it with a grain of salt. But you look just at that front, that front seven specifically, and you try to find uh, the talent and it's really lacking. It was a concern of mine coming into the season. So I I do think that the Chargers can keep this thing actually close, even if they are a little run heavy. I think it's going to be a really big day for Austin Eckler altogether because that Chiefs run defense is terrible. Uh, The other thing that I look at for this upcoming week is the Thursday night game, as we're going to see tomorrow with the uh, Panthers defense that everybody's really vibing on right now, that college style defense, those three down fronts, mucking up the running game. The Texans have shown that they want to be a run-heavy team on neutral scripts. Now they're starting a third-round rookie quarterback in his first game. They're going to want to run the football. Carolina wants you to try to run the football because it looks like it'll be easy against this defense, and it never is. That's one of the allures of this three-safety, three-down structure. I think it's going to be a uh, fast game in terms of a running clock. I think you're going to be run-heavy, and I think that Houston's going to run themselves into a brick wall trying to beat the Panthers' run defense that nobody's been able to do successfully. So I expect another low score. I'm not sold Panthers cover seven and a half because that that Texans defense actually a little bit better than we expected, but I do think uh, a low point total is what you expect in that one. And last but not least, uh, Cowboys minus four against the Eagles. Uh, the Eagles have eaten up against poor pass protecting offensive lines in Atlanta and against San Francisco. Still like a good offensive line, but a generally undersized offensive line and the Eagles pass rush comes through the interior. Javon Hargrave, Fletcher Cox, big guys. A lot more difficult when Zach Martin's playing football and he looked amazing uh, in week two. I think that the Eagles defense right now is living on the pass rush. They can't really cover anybody on the on the back end. I don't think pass rush is going to be as easy for Philadelphia. I think the Cowboys put a ton of points on them. Talk to me on the other side of the ball in that same matchup. Micah Parsons playing more D end. Uh, what do you think of that move? Obviously, he was getting into and pressuring, getting through that line of the Chargers last week and getting some pressure on Herbert. He looked really good. I believe he has 11 pressures so far through two games, which is by far, I mean, almost double what any other uh, rookie has done so far this season. Uh, what do you make of his matchup specifically this week against that Eagles offensive line? Yeah, going from uh, Storm Norton on the right side to Lane Johnson on the right side is a bit of a change. Uh, I don't think it'll be as easy. Uh, Storm Norton was the backup of the Chargers, had to play because Brian Bulaga was placed on IR. Lane's one of the best pass protecting right tackles in the game. Uh, when Micah wins, it's with athletic ability because he's a nuts athlete. When Lane wins, it's with athletic ability. Uh, and he's been doing this a little longer than Parsons has. So I don't think we're going to see the same level of success. I'm very happy. They got Parsons in that DPR designated pass rush role because that was always something that they promised during the offseason and is a good usage of his talents. He was a high school defensive end before Penn State kicked him to off-ball linebacker. So continue using him like that. Rotate that in even when Gregory and Demarcus Lawrence come back. But if he's hand in the dirt against Lane Johnson, you still expect you would expect Lane to win that matchup against a rookie who actually plays defensive end. When it's a guy who's kind of moonlighting as a defensive end, uh, I think it's going to win. So I like the idea in general. Lane Johnson's not the easiest tackle to go up against for anybody. Arthur Smith, take two. He had another chance. He had an ability to go back. Week one was only a one-game sample. He improved a lot of things for week two. But what did you think of what he was doing with this offense, the way that he was attacking the Bucs? Obviously, as we discussed before, they shifted to a much more pass-heavy approach. Um, what do you think that this team is going to do against the Giants who are having who get extra rest and time to prepare for this Falcons attack, given that they played last Thursday. Yeah, I still have faith in the Giants' defense, even with the issues they had against Washington on Thursday night. 
short week, different quarterback. Scott Turner's offense is, is, is tough to deal with. I do think that they are going to be able to match up well. You get James Bradbury on Calvin Ridley because you're not really worried about the wide receiver depth. Uh, Atlanta still can't find their number four overall drafted tight end. Uh, he has like as many targets as Mike Davis. Doesn't feel like the best allocation of resources after you drafted the guy. Uh, and so I'm not super sold still in the way that Atlanta's passing the football. I think that Matt Ryan gives that offense just a high floor and they were able to dice up Tampa Bay because Matt Ryan has historically diced up that Tampa Bay defense. I don't think they have the same level of success. They're also like super wacky in the red zone. Like I just don't think you can continue to trust Cordero Patterson one-handed catches behind the line of scrimmage to actually punch the ball in. You know what I mean? Like that (laughs) to me felt like a very blippy game. Uh, I still think that Atlanta is just desperately lacking for offensive line talent. And they're going up against yet another really good front uh, with the Giants. Dexter Lawrence, one of the best young players in the league. Uh, So liked it. Loved how they were competitive. Really appreciated the fire. I just don't have faith in this depth chart. They just are so lacking for talent. And actually, Ben, as we are recording live, this is the benefit of doing this show at this time, I guess, Wednesday morning. Brian Flores, Dolphins coach, just announces that after further testing, Tua Tungavailoa has fractured his ribs. He will be out this week. That means Jacoby Bursett, in Las Vegas, Sunday afternoon. What's your take on that? Yeah, the, the new-look Dolphins offense is built for Tua, and Brissett is a very different style quarterback, which is always an interesting thing when starting and backup quarterback dynamics are that way. Uh, quick game, RPO, distribute the ball. It's just not Brissett's style. So they have to try to open this up. They have to try to leave him in the pocket longer, and they have to try to go further down the field. The problem is they do not have the offensive line to do that. And right now, one of the best defensive lines in the league in terms of early season performance is the Raiders' defensive line. Max Crosby currently leading the league in pressures with 19. That's four more than the next closest player. And Yannick Ngakwe has nine. He's knocking on the door of the top 10. They are really, really good right now, racing on the outside edges. And the Dolphins' tackle situation is arguably the worst in the league. Uh, So Raiders minus three and a half was already something interesting to me coming into this game. Now that we know there's no Tua and and it's Brissett, I do not see how the Dolphins keep pace. I think the Raiders are going to control that game in the defensive trenches and are going to be able to continue to win in the passing game. Derek Carr looks pretty nice in 2021. So the news already takes me on a a line I was already liking. The news just pushes me even further, thinking that the Raiders are going to be able to cover. It's been interesting, Ben. These books in week three, they've been keeping these lines on the board despite quarterback issues. And normally when there was a quarterback issue, they would take the game completely off of the board, wait until there was some type of announcement, then they would repost it. Instead, what they're doing is they're circling some of these games, which basically means they're allowing lower limits. So when we're talking about like Carson Wentz or we're talking about Andy Dalton, the Chicago Bears quarterback situation, obviously Baker Mayfield got dinged up last week. We're talking about Tua, like they were keeping these games on the board, but just taking slightly lower limits on them. Um, And in some cases, at least with this Tua situation, it felt like they were keeping this game on the board potentially because they believed that there wasn't that big of a drop-off between Tua and Jacoby Brissett, at least the way that Tua was playing the first couple of weeks of the season, that a veteran, a seasoned veteran like Jacoby Brissett is not going to make this line that much different, and they wouldn't have to make that much of an adjustment, so they're just keeping the line up there on the board to continue to just take in action on this game. But your perspective, Ben, which is which is notable, obviously, as the expert in studying these things, you do believe that this offense is going to look worse than what the odds makers could potentially be expecting with Jacoby Brissett at the helm. Yeah, so like 
Carson Wentz and Jacob Eason, big bodies, pocket passers, strong arms, can create a little bit with their legs. It's a similar prototype, so you don't change too much structurally in the offense if one has to go versus the other. Obviously, you expect the quality of play to drop, but the offense stays the same. What interests me about Miami is how much the offense has to change to a, to Brissett. And that's like I brought up that dissonance between QB1 and QB2 play style is curious. Uh, Tua, th- this offense is built for a quick game. It's built for RPOs. You want to be a fast release player. Uh, so you like literally physical fast release of the football. You want to be precise in the short areas of the field. You look at how Jacoby Brissett has been used by Bill Belichick and by Frank Reich when he was in Indianapolis. It was longer dropbacks, more time in the pocket, deeper depth of target. They kept players in six in pass protection, seven in pass protection to give isolated routes down the field. It is completely polar to what they try to do with Tua, at least for the first five quarters of the season. So my worry here is, okay, Brissett is a fairly decent backup. He's had some starting experience. We might think to ourselves, oh, that that means that he can keep this Dolphins offense afloat. But because the offense is going to have to change so much structurally, uh, I don't have as much faith in the Dolphins to be able to put points up, even with Brissett's high floor of skill. So that's why this one matters to me a little bit more than like Wentz and Eason. Before we dive into Thursday night, now we touched on it briefly, I want to run through these over and undervalued teams in this context. Team that won last week and is favored this week, but we don't necessarily love them as a favorite in this spot, either the the matchup isn't ideal or they're getting overvalued. And so I'll run through the options that you've got. You've got the Panthers minus seven and a half against the Texans, the Bills minus eight and a half against Washington, Broncos minus 10 and a half against the Jets, Browns minus seven and a half against the Bears, 49ers minus three and a half against the Packers, Cardinals minus seven and a half against the Jags, Ravens minus eight and a half against the Lions, Patriots minus three against the Saints, Raiders minus three and a half against the Dolphins, I'm going to get this one off the board. Rams pick them. Obviously, that is now shifted. Now the Bucks are the favorite. So that one's not part of the discussion. Titans minus five and a half against the Colts or Cowboys minus four against the Eagles. And actually, as we speak, a little bit of Eagles money's coming. That line is down to three and a half at a lot of spots. Uh, obviously, we're doing this real time. Any team there that's a favorite that you think might not be in an ideal spot this week? Uh, well, I think uh, Broncos 10.5 feels like a lot, but it's also mile high, and it's a Vic Fangio defense against Zach Wilson. Uh, I have the under in that game because I don't have as much faith in the Broncos offense, um, but I'm not going to fade Denver in mile high in September. That's just dumb. So I like. And you've got some good line value in that mm-hmm. game. That game opened at 42.5 on the total. Uh, let me look at what we are sitting at right now. That is down to 41, which is a key number in NFL totals. A 41 hits at a fairly high rate. It did more so in the past when scoring was a little bit lower, but that is a key number. So you got on the right side of the 41. Yeah. In the amount of time it took me to tweet about taking it under 43 when it opened, it was at 42 and a half. Uh, you know, like that, that feels like a low score. I'm going to lean actually for Browns minus seven and a half against Chicago. Uh, Jarvis Landry potentially on your, uh, he's on the injured reserve list, excuse me. Plus Odell, not necessarily back means that we, we could be looking at starting wide receiver three, four, and five. That's Donovan Peoples-Jones, Rashard Higgins, Anthony Schwartz. The problem with that is that that grouping, Donovan Peoples-Jones, Anthony Schwartz, that's their explosive play, guys. Uh, 
you don't want to build the entire passing game out of deep shots, especially with the way Cleveland moves the football. So I expect that to be a super run-heavy game, as it always is with Cleveland, but especially if their wide receivers remain down. Uh, And Chicago's run defense isn't amazing, but they do have a pretty good defensive front that can cause some problems, can get some TFLs. Uh, And you love Roquan Smith being able to to play fast, play physical. He's the sort of guy who can match up with Nick Chubb in the hole. So I think the Browns struggled to move the ball a little bit, and then obviously we don't know what the quarterback situation is in Chicago, but Andy Dalton has been like high floor. And if it's not Dalton and it's Fields, I feel even better about that because I like Justin Fields. I think he's a good player and I think that his scramble ability will extend some Chicago drives. Um, So when it's over a touchdown there, home game for Chicago, I do think that the Bears have a good shot to cover. The Washington one is interesting to me simply because I think overall their team has a reasonable floor. Uh, they typically haven't laid a whole lot of eggs And, you know, Bills, that offense still not right on track. As you said, it's going to be up to Dayball to make some adjustments. Dayball is probably one of my favorite offensive coordinators in the NFL. His ability to make in-game adjustments has really been remarkable. Um, So I'm interested to see what he's going to bring to the table uh, in that game. All right, Ben, let's switch gears. A team that lost last week and is an underdog this week that could potentially be in a good spot. We're talking about recency bias from the public. They just saw these guys lose. We're talking about line value bias because they think that this team, having lost and being an underdog, is just in a bad spot this week. Public likes to back the favorites. We've got the Texans on Thursday night against the Panthers, the Jets against the Broncos, the Chargers against the Chiefs, the Falcons against the Giants. Jags against the Cardinals, Lions against the Ravens, Saints against the Patriots, Dolphins against the Raiders, Bengals against the Steelers, Colts against the Titans, Vikings against the Seahawks, or Eagles against the Cowboys. Ben, what team is a dog that lost last week do you think could be in a decent spot this week? Yeah, so last week my team for this was the Lions. and I said we could get that backdoor cover. Well, we were down by 18. We needed 11 and a half. We were driving there at the end and it was raining and Jared Goff couldn't drive the football. Small hands. The Lions are in a dome this week. You're playing at home. (laughs) It's not going to be any weather. Uh, They're eight and a half against the Ravens, which the Ravens coming off that very emotional win against the Chiefs. uh, And and impressive game, impressive cover. Um, But they were a team that gave it up to the the, the Raiders. They had multiple turnovers. They're still lacking on on, on the defense side of the football for talent with the injuries to Marcus Peters and Jimmy Smith. Uh, and obviously, they want to run the football. They want to be able to control the clock. The Ravens, when they build a, a big lead, usually tend to sit on that lead. And the Lions, like I said last week, are the sort of team that right now, they're really trying in the fourth quarter. Like They're running the two-minute drill down 18 because that's what Dan Campbell wants to be. So I really like backing them as a multi-sport dog, especially at home, especially when I think Goff should have another good day passing the football against this Ravens defense. Uh, they're going to blitz them a lot. So you're probably going to get some turnovers. There could be some, some uh, big score gaps early if the Ravens defense has caused some havoc. But I, I think the Lions have a good chance to cover eight and a half as well. Back to the well, man. I'm an idiot still. Nope. But you're looking for line value. Not a dumb decision at all, in my opinion. Um, before we get into Thursday night preview real quick, was there anything else that stood out to you from reviewing film that you think are gonna is going to help betters this week? Anything that you didn't get a chance to touch on? Empty the notebook here real quick. Or did we cover everything you wanted to get out there? Uh, if you like good offense, don't watch Steelers Bengals. Uh, that's my thought on that game. That's a, I think the Steelers cover that game. I think Cincinnati's in a bad place offensively. And I think Pittsburgh's also in a bad place offensively, but they've been there longer and they kind of know how to deal with it. Um, to me that that's going to be a super ugly one. So, uh, we talked about the, the under in that game, I think a little bit beforehand, Warren, I'm on Steelers minus four. Um, but that should be the sort of game that's just maddening to watch no matter your position because everybody's playing poorly. 
One thing I got to throw out there, we we have the Pittsburgh Steelers beat writers talking about the fact they need to draft a running back. A running draft will, quote unquote, energize the lethargic running game of the Pittsburgh Steelers. They were celebrating when the Steelers ended up doing that. And now we're getting articles written about there's not much that rookie Najee Harris can do about the lack of the run game potential because the offensive line simply is not very good. It is yeah. quite ironic, quite ironic indeed. Let's talk. And the funny thing is, one of their day three offensive line starters, Kendrick Green, is good. Like he is playing well, but still they had multiple positions weak on that line. The tackles there are dreadful. And now, now I mean, I hope I hope the writer is incorrect. I'm talking about Ed Bouchette in this case, but I hope he's incorrect. But he mentioned that. Offensive coordinator Matt Canada might have to revert to Randy Fickner's quick draw, short passing attack to prevent. They're already doing it. They're, They're already, already doing it, Warren. The, the, it's so bad. The pressure rate, the pressure rate is there, but they are already throwing extremely short. There's not much shorter that they can throw the football. I do not think that's the answer to their question. Um, yeah, Kevin asked me on the Monday show, he was like, Steelers offense, is it Canada's running the Fickner stuff? Like, what's the problem? And I was like, when the quarterback's this limited, you can't not run the Fickner stuff. It's the only thing there is. Right. It's, it's run I formation or like triple option or do this in the passing game because he can't push football. And so you, you don't have intermediate hole shots. You don't have deep windows. You have to play super short. So, I mean, Steelers offense just makes me want to cry. The receiver room is really, really good. It's just they can't be maximized. No, no, it's, it is it is quite frustrating indeed. I'm sure the emotion after upsetting the Bills week one probably had a lot of Steelers fans who were hearing it from the analytics folk all offseason after the draft. You know, had those guys beating their chest and obviously we don't wish ill upon any fan base. We hope that the Steelers can once again have a lot of pride. I was in raised by a Steelers fan. I wish ill on the Steelers fan base <laughs> just out, 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 of a, out of a childish instinct. <laughs> Okay. Um, let's close with a couple more thoughts on Thursday night. You already indicated uh, that you do not see the Houston Texans running game having a lot of success. They want to try to run the ball. Carolina is going to invite that rushing attack. And then Carolina is going to snuff it out really quickly before it ends up getting to develop into anything. We also know that Davis Mills was a chucker last week. He throws the ball down the field, tries to push the ball, and did not have a lot of success in doing so. Um, do you think my first question is interesting angle on this game from my perspective, the Houston Texans team total is sitting at 17 and a half points and the Carolina Panthers did not allow 17 and a half points week one against the Jets, obviously a rookie quarterback, first round pick Zach Wilson for the Jets, better receivers than what uh, the Houston Texans bring to the table and the Jets had to score really late in that game just to kind of get a backdoor push. Depends on the cover. Maybe you got that depending on what line that you laid, uh, but they didn't allow over 17 and a half. Then last week to the Saints, Saints didn't come close. Sean Payton's all-time career low in yards gained for an offense came against this Carolina Panthers. Short week, less time to make radical modifications for an offense for the Houston Texans with a quarterback that isn't quite experienced. What do you think? Do they exceed 17 and a half points for the Houston Texans offense? Yeah, the moment I saw this in our rubric, I did like a few minutes of prep and then I took under 17 and a half. But I was like, thanks, Warren. Um, but right, to me, uh, the Panthers defense, three deep safety talked about it. Uh, they're not super oriented on the pass rush, but they are going to take away your deep passing game, which as you said, Davis Mills was a chucker. Uh, the, the Texans also want to live with RPOs. This defense is really nice for taking away RPOs. They're, they want to be run heavy on neutral script. Defense takes away the run. Uh, it does all the good stuff. The way to beat this 
Carolina Panthers defense is to have elite outside receivers and funnel targets at them. Brandon Cooks is good. I don't think he's that good. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think the Texans are going to struggle to move the ball. I also am not super fearful of, of Texans defensive havoc because even though I think they're playing better defensively than we anticipated, it's Tampa two zones, it's deep zones, it's make you sustain a drive. It's not like they're getting big pass rush, generating turnovers, generating havoc in that way. So I like them under 17 and a half for the team total. That makes a lot of sense to me. Any quick thoughts on Darnold fitting into this offense so far, the things Joe Brady is doing? Have you been impressed? And where do you see them uh, kind of progressing and molding themselves in the weeks ahead? Yeah, the the best thing about Darnold is the willingness and aggressiveness against man, which if you look back at his data uh, when he was with the Jets, like he was good against man coverage when he wasn't getting blitzed like crazy. Uh, and so far against a Saints team that was missing uh, a lot of the defensive staff and they're missing Marshawn Lattimore who's playing Gimpy. Uh, he was able to win against man coverage. And then when they had the Jets in week one, uh, the fun game this year is see how many Jets corners you can name because nobody really knows who they're playing at cornerback. Uh, they've been able to win Robbie Anderson, DJ Moore. So in the same way that beating the Panthers defense, or yeah, beating the Panthers defense is uh, winning with outside receivers. Right now, the Panthers are just winning with their outside receivers. And Donald is working as a facilitator. And he's got the arm. He's got the off-platform throws to do that. Texans do not have the, the cornerback room to successfully take away Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore. I think it's going to be another successful week for, for Darnold. What matters is when you look down the, the Panthers' schedule, they get a Dallas team where they should be able to throw the ball against those players. Philadelphia team, Minnesota team, they should be able to throw the ball against those players. They face generally soft secondaries in the first half of the year. I'll be a lot more interested when they get Tampa and see what you're able to do against Carlton Davis and Jamel Dean and some of those outside guys. And so right now, I like what they're doing. I think that Joe Brady is giving clear, quick, defined reads. He's not leaving Dan Donald in the pocket for a long time. I think all that's good, but it really hasn't been tested yet. And I'm not sure it will be tested for a while. So the Panthers could build themselves a nice little uh, nest egg of wins here to see if they could sustain a, a good season of play. Yeah, and that's interesting because there are props that you can take on which team stays undefeated the longest. And on Twitter, at Sharp Football. Uh, and actually, the ringer should tweet this out, too, because we're talking about it on here. There is a chart that I just posted um, earlier on a scheduled tweet, which team stays undefeated the longest. And it's got all the teams that are currently undefeated. And the Carolina Panthers, as you mentioned, if they get by the Houston Texans, which we think that they will this week three, they play at Dallas. Then they've got home games against the Eagles, the Vikings and their defense, which we're going to have to get into a little bit in the future. Uh, and then they get a couple road games against you know, the Jason Garrett-led Giants offense and the Arthur Smith-led Falcons offense. So interesting, they're plus 700 right now to be the team that stays undefeated the longest. Although looking at the schedules, um, the Raiders, if they're somehow able to beat the uh, the Chargers, have maybe some interesting upside value there as well. Interesting, interesting elements to discuss here. And this whole show, Ben, just super enthused by our week two performance. I absolutely love talking ball with you and picking your brain on all of these things. That will do it, guys. I want to thank everyone for listening and for all your positive feedbacks. We will be back again on Friday with the Ringer Gambling Show and Joe House to give you some bets for the upcoming weekend. Thanks again to Ben Solak for joining me, to Mike Wargron and Craig Holbrook for producing the show, and we will see you guys on Friday.